will open us here in a, a brief word of prayer as we get going. Oh God, we thank you for uh, your day. Um, today is your day, Sunday. It is uh, the Christian Sabbath, the day when we come together to worship you. Uh, and we spend the day worshiping you, Lord. We, uh, we thank you for this um, great gift that you've given to us. Um, and we pray, Lord, that uh, we would keep your Sabbath well today, that uh, we will have come here um, preparing to hear your word and uh, to love it and to learn from it and to be changed by it. And so, God, we pray for that this morning. We pray that uh, you would change us and that we would submit to your word and that we would love it and that it would change us. Um, bless this time now together as we study your word, and uh, we pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, if you have uh, your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Um, we're going to be looking at a, a couple of different passages this morning. Uh, we're continuing our series on the sacraments, as we've been doing week after week here. And uh, today is our final session on the doctrine of baptism. So some of you may be happy, uh, some of you may be sad, uh, I don't know, but uh, regardless, today is the last day on baptism. We're today going to be looking at the recipients of baptism, okay? The recipients of baptism. And there are um, three different categories of recipients that I want to talk about this morning as we're sort of finishing up our series on baptism, and that is this. Uh, the first category of recipients is the believer. All right, so what is, you know, what is the doctrine of baptism for the believer and uh, what happens when the believer receives baptism? And then I want to look at the second category, which is the children of believers. How do we, why do we baptize them and you know, what happens when they get baptized? And then the third category is the unbeliever. Okay, what happens when an unbeliever gets baptized? Okay, so we've got these three different categories of people, right? Believers, the children of believers, and the unbeliever. And I want to look at each of those categories individually here this morning. So as we look at um, baptism for the believer, we want to look at Acts chapter 2. And I want to read uh, for us here, starting at verse 36, and just a couple of verses there. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 36. Now this is, just to give you some context, this is right after Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and Peter now is uh, finishing up his sermon to the people that have just witnessed all of these amazing things. And he's explaining the gospel and explaining Jesus and so on. In verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now we'll look at the next verse uh, and a little bit more in this passage in just a second, but as we look at uh, baptism for the believer right now, we want to note a couple of things, okay? Because what we're doing is we look at these three categories of people, the believer, the children of believers, and the unbeliever, is we want to look at um, what are the qualifications to give baptism to these recipients, and if there are any, 
and uh, what does baptism actually do for each of these individual uh, categories of people, okay? So as we're looking at the believer right now, we want to ask, if we have a professing believer, do we give them baptism as an adult? And the answer is, of course, yes, right? If If they have not been baptized especially, right, we give them baptism, The professing believers, and we see that here in this passage, Peter explains the gospel to them. The people are cut to the heart, and he says, repent and be baptized. Repentance is a fruit of faith. So what he's really saying is, you know, have faith and be baptized. So that is, of course, the requirement for baptism for adults, whom Peter is speaking to here. You only give baptism to believing adults, not unbelieving adults. And we see that throughout the book of Acts. People believe, and they get baptized. Right? Standard operating procedure for the apostles here. Okay? So faith is required for adults to be baptized. Now, what happens when a believer receives the sacrament of baptism? Now, this is what we talked about last week, right, from 1 Peter 3. Baptism is a sign, a sign of the promises of God in the gospel, a visible word presenting the doctrine of the gospel in a visible form that we can see with our, our eyes or, or touch with our hands in the case of the Lord's Supper. So baptism is a sign, and it's also a seal. Right? And when we talk about a seal, we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit to seal upon the heart of the believer the promises of God. And so what that does is it strengthens our faith in the promises. And it builds for us a Christian conscience. And this is the thing we were talking about last week from 1 Peter 3, a Christian conscience. Right? A, a sort of, sort of our, our internal sense of trust in the promises of God. Right? That's what a Christian conscience is, something that determines the will of God. And that's what Peter says baptism is for the believer. Right? It is an appeal to God for a good conscience. And a cleansing from an evil conscience. It is the conforming of our mind to the will of God. And therefore we trust his promises in that way. And that, that is the work of the sacraments. To seal the promises of God on our hearts. Okay? So that's what's happening for the believer in baptism. Alright? Sealing the promises on our hearts. Strengthening our faith. And that's why faith is required for baptism. Right? Because if baptism is not giving faith... Baptism is strengthening faith, so it's already requiring faith on the front end. That's why here in Acts, faith is required before baptism is being given. All right? Okay, this is the easier out of all the different categories of people, right? Dealing with believers, adult believers. But the second category of people with respect to baptism are the children of believers. And I'm sure all of you being part of this church, I think almost all of you are at least, you know that in a Presbyterian church, we baptize not only adults professing believers, right, but we also baptize the children of believers. And particularly, not just children as in 12 years old or 10 years old or 8 years old, but we will baptize the infant children of believers. And uh, the question is, why do we do that? I mean, didn't we just say right, faith is required in order for the effects of baptism to work? Why do we baptize children? Can they even have faith? Well, 
That's the subject I want to deal with now, the second category of people. Why do we give baptism to the children of believers, and what does baptism accomplish for the children of believers? Okay. A couple of things to note here. Again, we could, we could do a, a lot of stuff with, with this question, but I just want to try to, to get at the heart of it here. First thing, first reason why we baptize the children of believers is this. Children were included in the visible church in the Old Testament. And that's actually not something that just Presbyterians believe. That's actually something that, that Baptists will believe too. In the Old Testament, children were a part of the covenant community. They were considered to be God's children. The children of believers were. Now, not pagan children. Not the children of unbelievers. We're talking about the children of believers. They were considered in the Old Testament to be part of the Old Testament visible church. The covenant community. The institutional church. The people who you are to treat as Christians. That's what we're talking about. The children of believers in the Old Testament were to be treated as believers as well. And we can see this. Not only in how children were treated in the Old Testament, but we can see this even when God gives the sacrament of circumcision. Right, we talked about this. We've had a number of sessions here where we've talked about circumcision. God gives circumcision to Abraham. And Paul in Romans 4 calls that a sign and seal of righteousness by faith. And then he commands Abraham to give it to his children who are eight days old. Isaac. So God commanded Abraham to give a sign and seal of righteousness by faith to an eight-day-old infant. This is why if we, there are some uh, Christian traditions, and I want to, with all due respect to them, I don't want to, you know, smash them with a theological hammer or be rude or anything, but, you know, one of the Baptist claims is that you cannot give a sign of personal faith to a child or an infant because the infant is not capable of faith. First of all, you're assuming the infant's not capable of faith, but setting that issue aside, we have explicitly passages in Scripture, like Romans 4, saying circumcision was a sign of personal faith, and yet it was given to eight-day-old infants. You see that? So... There is nothing wrong in principle with giving a sign of faith to an infant, even if that infant is not yet capable of possessing the faith to which the sign points. You see that? Okay. So this is the first reason. Yeah, Ad, you have a question? to a little bit more toward that question when we get a little farther this morning. That's a great question. If I don't uh, address it at least a little bit, bring it up again toward the end if you will. Ask for questions at the end too. That's a great question. Um, Okay, so this is the first reason why we baptize the children of believers, right? Old Testament children were considered to be believers. They were considered to be part of the visible church. Now, that doesn't mean, just to clarify, that doesn't mean that every single child of believing parents is one of God's elect or is actually saved, okay? Rather, we're talking about we treat them as if they are, we assume that they are, 
because most of the time they actually end up being that way because God works in families. So we're not saying that if you're a child of a believing parent that you're automatically saved. But we are saying that that child is in a unique, special position. And that special position we'll talk about in just a second. But the second reason why we believe in the baptism of the children of believers is that when we come to the New Testament, we don't see any good reason in the New Testament to say that this reality has changed. In the Old Testament, the children of believers were considered to be part of the church. Now we get to the New Testament. Has this changed? Well, we better have good reason to say that it's changed because this would be a total change in the way that God has operated throughout redemptive history if he did change it and say, nope, now in the New Testament, children are not part of the church. Now in the New Testament, children are not that different than pagans and should be treated as pagans until they profess faith at an age of accountability. Well, if you're going to make that case, you better have good reason from Scripture because that's totally different than how God worked in the Old Testament. We come to the New Testament, we find, and I'm not going to go over all the passages. We could talk about this for a long time. I'm not going to go over all of this, but just in, in summary form, the New Testament does not seem to suggest that children are to be treated like pagans. Rather, it seems to suggest that children of believers are to be treated as the children of God. Jesus says, let the children come to me when his disciples didn't want them to. Acts chapter 2, right here, verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There seems to be in the New Testament... This idea that the children of believers are in a unique position. They're not to be treated as unbelievers. Rather, they're to be treated specially. And we can see this even more clearly if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I will ask you to turn there because this is an important passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is offering a great deal of um, inspired uh, instruction regarding marriage and divorce. And as he's, and as he's uh, going along in his argument here, he's talking about what to do when you find yourself in an unequally yoked position, right, where you've got yourself and you're married to an unbeliever, or you know of someone who's married to an unbeliever. You've got that, that um, really uh, pretentious situation, or possibly pretentious Okay. And so in verse 12, here Paul is giving instruction regarding that. And he says, this is 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Why? Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, what, what Paul's dealing with here is this whole issue of an unequal marriage, where you have one who's a believer and one who's an unbeliever. And you can imagine, if you're thinking through the theology of this, 
one question that would come to mind, especially if you're in living in that kind of situation, you would say, well, the scripture says that when you're married, you are one flesh. And yet I'm a believer and my husband is not a believer. Is my salvation in jeopardy? Is my sanctification in jeopardy? Is he going to be a, he or she going to be a, a bad influence on me and sort of pull me down? And, and, and how does God view this? And am I able to go to worship? And what am I to do with my kids? And, and are they, you know, what status are they in? And you can see all these questions that would arise if you're one flesh and yet one of you is a believer and one of you is not. One of you is united to Christ and the other one is not. And so Paul says, no, here's how it works. He said, the unbelieving spouse, husband or wife here, is made holy because of the believing spouse. Now, he's not saying that, you know, if you have a married couple and one of them is a believer and the other one is an unbeliever, that the unbelieving spouse is saved because of the believing spouse. That's not what he's saying. Rather, what he's saying is that by virtue of one spouse being a believer, the marriage itself is sanctified. That is, the marriage itself is clean before God. The marriage itself is fully spiritually legitimate. And why does that matter? Why should we care about that? Because in verse 14, the second half, second sentence, he says... Otherwise, your children would be unclean. This is why in the Old Testament, if you had unclean parents, namely pagan parents, unbelieving parents, Gentile parents who did not believe in Yahweh, the children were considered to be unclean. And so you didn't circumcise the children of unbelievers in the Old Testament. You didn't give them the sign of inclusion in the Old Testament visible church. Because they're pagans. They are unbelievers. They are not part of the church. They are unclean. But if the child was a child of believing parents in the Old Testament, people who did believe in Yahweh, people who did worship God, people who did obey the law of God, well, then you would circumcise the child because that child was considered clean And that child was considered holy and part of the Old Testament visible church. And you were to treat that child as a genuine believer in Yahweh unless the child proved otherwise. Paul here is importing that same thing into the New Testament church. And he's saying, look guys, if you find yourself in a situation where you're married and one of you is a believer and one of you is not... You don't have to worry. Your marriage is considered holy before God. And therefore, your children are not unclean. They are considered holy. This is actually sacrifice language. The children are not unclean. They are a holy sacrifice unto the Lord. Not a literal child sacrifice, but in the sense of you offering them up to God. You are to treat them as saints. In fact, that's literally the word here in the Greek. Hagia. Saints, your children are not unclean as it stands. They are saints. Now, Paul is not saying that every single child of believing parents is a genuine believer or is an elect of God or is saved. But what he's saying 
is that they are to be treated as holy. They are to be offered up to God. They are to be considered part of the church, just like in the Old Testament. And so if the children of believers are considered holy, if they are considered clean before God, if they are considered part of the fellowship of saints, well, then why can we not give them the sign of that inclusion as well, just like in the Old Testament? And so that's another reason why we believe in the practice of baptizing the children of at least one believing parent. So we baptize the children of believers. Now, we could go on and on and talk a lot more about why we baptize infants, but I want to ask another question here, and that is not just the why, but I want to ask sort of the substance of the matter and ask, what happens when we baptize the child of believers? What does baptism do for the child? We've already talked about what baptism does for the believing adult, right? That's what we talked about last week. It's the going, uh, the uh, appealing to God for a good conscience, right? The sealing of the promises of God on our heart and conscience. Right? That's what we say baptism is, a sign and seal of the promises of God offered in the gospel. Well, what does baptism do for an infant? Well, this is where we turn to the Westminster Confession of Faith. I don't know, I assume probably you don't have a copy of that on hand, but that's okay. I'm referring to the Westminster Confession, chapter 27, paragraph 6. And our Westminster divines make a very important observation about the sacraments there. And they say that the effects of baptism are not limited to the moment of its administration. I'm going to say that again. The effects of baptism are not limited to the moment of its administration. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means this. You remember, we already talked about the effects of baptism last week when we talked about the efficacy of baptism. What does it do? It seals the promises of God through the power of the Holy Spirit on our hearts and consciences. Those are the effects. Those effects are not limited to the very precise moment that baptism is administered. Those effects can happen before, at the moment of, or after baptism is administered. So when we baptize the child of a believer, even if that child does not have faith at that moment, the effects of that baptism can come into effect 10 years later, 15 years later, 25 years later, when they're 55 and they accept Christ for the first time. And it's at that moment when the faith is there that the Spirit is working through the sacraments to seal the promises of God in the gospel, strengthening the faith in the recipient. And this is precisely why, I've said this like five times in this series, I'll say it again. This is why Calvin talked about the fact that believers need to look back to their baptism. Because as they look back to their baptism, the Spirit is working through that to seal the promises of God on their heart. You are saved. As surely as the water washed over you, so the blood of Christ has washed away your sins. And your faith is strengthened and your conscience is molded further and further after the image of Christ so that you intuitively know the things of God and you know the promises are true. 
This is why we need the sacraments. And this is what baptism does. So when we baptize the children of believers, they may have faith at that moment. And we have so many, so many uh, testimonies of people saying, I've known Jesus for longer than I can remember. I don't remember a time when I didn't know Jesus. That's not everyone's story, but so many people understand that. And that's probably because the Spirit of God gave them the gift of faith before they were consciously aware of it. And so maybe when we baptize a child, that particular child receives the effects right away, and those effects are ongoing throughout their life. But maybe the child is not a believer, and later in life they become a believer when they're 15, when they're 25, when they're 45, and then the effects of baptism come into effect right there. So this is why this is an important principle to remember. The effects of baptism are not limited to the moment of its administration. And the divines argued this not because it just made their theology work or something, but they argued it because they said you can't limit the sovereignty of God and the freedom of God to a specific moment and make baptism this kind of automatic, mystical event. No. The sacraments are bigger than that. And God is bigger than that. And he works throughout the life of the believer. And he uses the sacraments to do it through the power of the Spirit. Okay? So, that's the category of the children of believers. Now, the last category that I want to deal with this morning is the unbeliever. Okay? What happens when an unbeliever gets baptized? Now, of course, uh, we don't really have to... Uh, go into why we don't baptize unbelievers. We've already sort of talked about that. We already see from Scripture that faith is required and, and so on. So we don't have to defend that idea so much. But the reality is that even though we, we try not to baptize unbelievers, sometimes we do by accident. Right? Sometimes we have people that you know, go to a, say, they go to a Billy Graham crusade or something. They break down they claim to accept Christ. They claim to profess faith in Christ. And they come to church. They get baptized the next Sunday. They receive the sacrament. And then a week later, they're back to their old ways, renouncing Christ. They're back to their agnosticism or atheism or something. So many people have had that testimony. Or maybe, in fact, we've got people who, you know, who claim to be Christians. They profess Christ, and yet they're not genuinely saved. They're just professing his name. They're pretending to be. So what happens when an unbeliever receives the sacrament of baptism? What happens to them? Well, this, uh, to answer this question, I want to go back to circumcision for a second. This is a repeating theme. If you're talking with Presbyterians about the sacraments, we're always going to go back to circumcision one way or another. But circumcision, on the one hand, we talked about this back when we looked at baptismal judgment. We had a whole Sunday school session on this, and you can go back and listen to this if you want to for more information. It's all on the, the church website and on Apple Podcasts. Um, but um, circumcision had basically a twofold symbolism. Okay? Firstly, circumcision symbolized covenant blessing. Right? It symbolized blessing uh, of the coming Messiah who would come through reproduction the land of Canaan, uh, the, the descendants of Abraham, all of this business, there was covenant blessing being symbolized by the sign of circumcision. And yet simultaneously with that, circumcision was not just a sign of covenant blessing, but circumcision was also a sign of covenant judgment. 
Because while at the same time circumcision symbolized the coming of the Messiah and the promises of the gospel that would come through that Messiah, it also involved the painful shedding of blood and symbolized the fact that if those who received that sacrament did not walk in faith like Abraham's faith, they, like the foreskin, would be cut off from God. They would be cut off from the covenant. And so you have circumcision symbolizing blessing in the covenant, but also symbolizing judgment. One of the things we noted in our baptismal judgment Sunday school session is that baptism is very similar in the New Testament. I hinted at this last week, but I wanted to save a lot of it for today. If you look at the New Testament, baptism also has a profound judgment aspect to it. It doesn't just symbolize It's not just a sign and seal of of the promises of God in the gospel, but it's also a symbol of the promises of God of judgment. In Mark 8, or excuse me, in Mark chapter 10, you don't need to turn there, but in Mark chapter 10, Jesus refers to his death on the cross as a baptism, a judgment. Uh, This is why Paul in Romans 6 talks about being buried with Christ in baptism. We're being buried in his death. That is, baptism is symbolizing that Christ took the judgment that we deserved. 1 Peter 3 identifies uh, um, baptism with the flood of Noah. We talked about this last week, where Noah's floodwaters saved Noah and his family, but simultaneously brought judgment on the wicked, the unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about baptism as the Red Sea. Israel was baptized walking through the Red Sea when it parted. Those same waters that parted ways so Israel could come through and be saved crashed down and destroyed Pharaoh and his army. And if we want to bring in the Lord's Supper here, 1 Corinthians 11 says that unworthy partakers of the Lord's Supper eat and drink condemnation upon themselves. And so there's a very real sense in which baptism is not only a sign and seal of covenant blessing, but like circumcision, baptism is also a sign and seal of covenant curses, covenant judgment. Now, because of the work of Christ, believers don't receive any of that covenant judgment. But for unbelievers, it's a different story. For unbelievers, they receive covenant judgment. Now, they're not going to receive the reality of the covenant judgment until the last judgment. But when an unbeliever receives baptism, their judgment is signified and their judgment is sealed on their hearts. And the scripture speaks about the sealing of judgment on the heart by using the phrase hardening of the heart. Because if you think about it, an unbeliever comes and partakes of the Lord's Supper They're an unbeliever. What are they doing? They're pretending to be one of Christ's. They're pretending to honor Christ as God. They're pretending to be who they are claiming to be on the outside. But what they're really doing is they're eating and drinking judgment upon themselves because their hardness of heart is clear. And the supper then works as a seal to harden their hearts as the Spirit withdraws. Similarly, baptism. And so there is, in this way, there is, in conclusion here, as we're wrapping up, because I'm out of time, in conclusion, there really is a sense in which we can say, baptism always works. It always does what it signifies. 
it always is a sign and seal, regardless of whether the person is a believer or an unbeliever. It always does it. But the believer, for the believer, baptism is a sign and seal of covenant blessing, of the promises of God in the gospel. For the unbeliever, baptism is a sign and seal of the promises of God with respect to judgment. And so baptism is always accomplishing what it's signifying one way or the other. And in that way, baptism is similar to the word of God. Because when the word of God is preached, it's either responded to with belief or unbelief. If we respond to the word of God with belief, salvation comes. If we respond to the word of God with unbelief, judgment comes. And this is why Reformed theologians have said the word of God and the sacraments are in tandem. The same thing is happening there. So, that is baptism. And that's why we need it. And I hope that this uh, discussion of baptism has been helpful. Um, If you have questions, I know we're sort of out of time here. I'll get to you in a second, Robert. If you have more questions, you can come talk to me after we're done here, after I pray and close this out. Um, But we'll be moving on to the Lord's Supper next week. And we won't spend as much time on the Lord's Supper as baptism because we've had to cover sacraments in general for this part of the series. So it won't be quite as long, but uh, I hope it's been helpful. Yes, sir. Could you respond to Kim's question about baptism of children of non-believers? Yes. Um, the baptism of children of non-believers, that would be uh, basically what I just said about unbelievers. Um, now, you wouldn't... Yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing because the children of unbelievers, according to Paul, would be considered unclean and unholy. Right? They are not um, to be considered believers. They're not to be considered um, a holy and clean before God. And so we would not baptize them. Um, because it, uh, it would go against Paul's teaching there in 1 Corinthians 7, as well as the whole thrust of the Old Testament. Now, that's not to say that a child of an unbeliever couldn't become saved later and then become baptized later. They certainly, it's not like they're condemned you know, to hell forever because they come from an unbelieving home. Many of us maybe came from an unbelieving home and somehow, through the grace of God, became saved. And then we became baptized later. But we wouldn't baptize the children of unbelievers. So does that answer your question? It's a factor. The, the issue about salvation, which I think is more what you're getting at there, is not about an age of accountability so much as it's about the grace of God and how God works out election and effectual calling in the life of each individual um, Christian. So maybe we can talk afterwards a little bit. I think there might be a, some more levels to your question there. Yes. Yes.
Yes, that's exactly right. And that's exactly uh, in conformity with the Old Testament as well, right? Parents are given the primary responsibility of teaching the children the Word of God and, and uh, instructing them in the ways of the Lord. And the church comes alongside of them and helps them with that. So that's right. And that, there is a commitment there because that's what the body of Christ is to do, to build each other up and to instruct one another. All right, well, if you have any more questions, please come and talk to me afterwards. I'd be happy to, to discuss some more things with you. I'll come over and, and uh, speak with you afterwards here. All right, let's pray and, and close out today. Oh, God, we thank you for your, uh, your word, and we thank you for the sacraments of God. Um, Lord, we, uh, we learn from your word that um, you know, we so desperately need you, and we so desperately need uh, both word and sacrament. Now, God, I pray that uh, this study of the sacraments would be helpful and it would be encouraging to all of us um, that we would have a deeper, more rich understanding of your sacraments uh, and that when we, when we watch them being performed, when we see a child or, uh, or some, some adult being baptized or when we partake of the Lord's Supper, Lord, I pray that, uh, that what we learn here from your word would fill our minds and our hearts and our consciences so that we would be brought into better conformity with your mind. Oh God, we, we thank you for your word and we pray that you'd continue to aid us as we study it. And pray, Lord, now that you prepare us to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning, and that you prepare us also to hear and to be changed by the preaching of your word. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.